0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Again, we're having a chat about Huram Sultan, one of the most powerful women in the history of the Ottoman Empire. Huram Sultan's marriage to Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent ushered in a period of Ottoman history known to us today as the Sultanate of Women, a time when women had unprecedented political influence and power in Ottoman imperial politics. And and obviously that in and of itself is remarkable. I mean, a woman in the halls of power carving out a place at the table for other women that came after her. This is as early as the 16th century. Um, But the rest of Hurrem's life story makes this achievement all the more incredible. First of all, Ottoman sultans just didn't get married back then. Instead, they collected concubines in their harem so her marriage to a sultan in the first place huge reversal of tradition but that's just the start she gave birth to five sons when ordinarily imperial consorts were restricted to just one so as to prevent them from coming to becoming too influential she moved herself into the imperial palace where women had always been forbidden um, and she was the first woman to take the title of haseki sultan uh more or less a Brand new political position of great power that she enjoyed. And all of these things, all this rule breaking, all of the upending of all these traditions, right? This, this all set brand new precedents for high powered women in the Ottoman Empire in the years that followed. And all the Haseki sultans that came after her continued her legacy of powerful women staying involved in Ottoman politics. But even more remarkable than all of this, right? is her origin story, the fact that Hurem Sultan started off in life as a young girl in the kingdom of Poland, in modern-day Ukraine. She was stolen away from her life there as a slave at a very young age, and she managed to rise from being a concubine in the imperial harem to become one of the most powerful women in the empire, one of the most powerful women on earth, really. And uh, she did this through a keen sense of political opportunism and, of course, knowing how to make friends and how to eliminate enemies. And while she's at the top, I'm happy to say she achieved a great many other things. But we'll come to that. We're going to talk in great detail about uh, the story of her rise to the top. That's what's really fascinating here. But. Of course, as I say every week, so much to get across, as you can imagine. So let's get stuck in. Let's get stuck in here and have a chat about Huram Sultan and how she, uh, how she kicked off the, the Sultanate of Women. Off we go. So going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to around the turn of the 16th century, probably between 1502 and 1506. Uh, We don't know exactly, but it was in this time, around this time that a young girl was born in the town of Rohattin in Ruthenia. Now, at this point, Rohattin is part of the Kingdom of Poland. Uh, today, you'll find it in Ukraine. We don't know the birth name of this young girl. There are theories that say that it was Anastasia or Alexandra, something like that. But look, we're not we're not sure. Uh, in fact, we hardly know anything about her childhood at all. She might have been the daughter of an Orthodox priest, but the even that I mean, the few details that we have are, are, are pretty sketchy. So... In any case, we're not spending very long in Rohatan. Um, the focus of our story today isn't Ukraine or Athenia or Poland. Instead, of course, it is in the mighty Ottoman Empire. In 1453, the Ottomans uh, had captured Constantinople, episode 222, get across it, under Mehmed the Conqueror. He rebuilt the city, unofficially renamed it Istanbul, and established, uh, established the city as the capital of his empire. And at the time that our story begins, his grandson, Selim I, is the emperor or the sultan, Ruling over an empire that is vast and powerful and only getting, well, only getting vaster and, and powerful, really, uh, Selim spent his reign expanding the realm like never before. He's generally credited with growing the Ottoman Empire to the world's preeminent Islamic realm, uh, and this was done as he almost doubled its size by conquering the Levant, uh, Egypt, and much of the rest of the Islamic world, and by the time that he was finished... There wasn't another, there wasn't a single other Muslim nation that could really hold a candle to the Ottoman Empire. But he also attacked and raided to the west and the north into into Christendom, into the Christian world. Uh, And this is where we very briefly return to Athenia. During Selim's rule, right, Tatars from Crimea would ride off to the northwest and they would carry out slave raids. They'd bring back captives from European settlements and sell them in Ottoman slave markets. Terrible thing. An absolutely atrocious and reprehensible way to treat your fellow humans. Obviously, that goes without saying. And it was on one of these slave raids. Uh, obviously, we don't know exactly which one or when it happened. Um, but it was one of these slave raids that was particularly significant because on this raid... These Tatars brought back this young girl that I mentioned before, this young girl from Ruthenia, whose name we don't know. Sometime in the 1510s, this girl was seized, she was taken from her home, and she was sold into slavery and found her way to Istanbul, the Ottoman capital. And it was there, at the Ottoman slave markets there, that she was selected by Hafsa Sultan, a concubine of Sultan Selim I, one of the most powerful and influential people in the Ottoman Empire, the mother of the future Sultan, Solomon the Magnificent. Anyway, Hafsa Hafsa bought this uh, this young girl for her son, Solomon, considering her to be a fine gift for him, the future leader of the Ottomans, which is um, obviously all kinds of awful. Uh, But it's very likely that Hafsa chose this girl specifically because she was slim and pale and good looking and she had bright red hair, which the Ottomans considered exotic. So there you go. All the poor rangers who have been bullied all their lives for, you know, having carrot tops and freckles. Just move to Turkey, where all of a sudden it's a selling point for you, apparently. Uh, anyway, the other selling point that this young woman had uh, was that she was also a Christian. She was a Christian, which meant that she, if she had a son with Suleiman, right, as as, as one of his concubines... This kid would probably avoid kicking off some great big dynastic conflict for the for the position of sultan with any of his half brothers because he was so far down the pecking order being half christian. Uh, but look, we'll get into the we'll get into the politics of of Ottoman succession in due course. It is a whole thing, let me tell you. But suffice to say this woman's youth, her beauty, her origin and apparently her red hair meant that she caught the eye of one of the most powerful women in Istanbul. So, this, uh, this young woman, this girl, who would only be, only been a teenager, uh, probably 17 or so, she was taken by Hafsa, she was placed in Solomon's Growing Harem, and there she was trained in, as one thing I read, put it, <clears throat> Turkish, the principles of Islam, and the erotic arts, which is quite a sentence to have read. Uh, Anyway, it seems that she actually took to this new life uh, as a member of the Imperial Harem very positively, uh, because the name that we know her by today, the name she earned for herself back then while a slave in this harem, was Hurum, which means joyful or the cheerful one. Uh, This wasn't the only name she got. She's also known as Roxolana, both back then and now, uh, which means quite uninspiringly, girl from Ruthenia. Uh, But as I say, Roxolana... Huram Sultan, used interchangeably today, back then even. She's referred to by both names. Anyway, Huram, Roxolana, whatever you want to say. Uh, She made the most of her new lot in life as a concubine in this harem. It was expected for powerful leaders like the Sultan to have large and expansive harems of slave women. But most of these women wouldn't even really ever meet the man who owned them um, and instead would just be put to work in more or less domestic servitude, right? And and this is what happened to Huram, at least to begin with. But uh, it wasn't long after she joined Suleiman's harem that Selim I, his dad, died. And so Suleiman took his place as sultan in 1520. He's 25 years of age. Well, Huram is uh, is probably, as I said before, around 17. Not, not 100% sure on that. Anyway, um, and it was shortly before Solomon's rise to the position of sultan that one night Hafsa selected Huram to join Suleiman in bed one night, which is... Again, a very strange thing for a mother to do for her son, but that's just how they did it in the Ottoman Empire. And I'll tell you this as well. Once Huram accepted this, uh, this objective that, uh, Hafsa had given her, once, once she'd, she'd sort of taken this assignment on board, whatever she bloody did in there, Suleiman loved it, mate. He couldn't get enough of it. And this single encounter between Suleiman and his concubine Huram, Completely changed the course of Ottoman history. And I don't, I, I'm not just talking about here and now, I'm not, I'm not talking about in and around 1520. No, no, no. Solomon's relationship with Huram would go on to break all sorts of long-held imperial rules, overturn a bunch of old Ottoman traditions, and establish in their place new ones, new rules, new traditions that would stick around for a very long time. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Here is the situation back in 1520, around the time that Solomon and Huram have this first encounter. Solomon at this time already had a primary consort, Mahadevran, with whom he also had a son – now, as I, as I sort of alluded to before, it wasn't unusual for blokes like Suleiman to just root all sorts of different women. Islamic law stated that the Sultan could have as many as four different wives, uh, although generally the Sultan had zero, um, and could also keep as many concubines as he liked. And mo- most Sultans had a lot, right? That was generally how things were done. Um, however, Once a concubine gave birth to a son, they were generally prevented from having any more kids. Uh, And this was because there was a sort of pretty strictly adhered to rule that one concubine could have one son and that was it. And the fate of the mother and son largely depended on the status of the woman in question and the precedence of the son. If you were a lower-ranking concubine with a son who didn't factor in very high when it came to succession, you would raise and guide the son. And then once he came of age, you'd be just shipped off to a remote imperial province somewhere within the Ottoman Empire with your son, uh, and you wouldn't stay in the harem all your life. The son would act as a regional governor um and you as the mother you'd be there once again to guide and advise him mothers played a very big role in their son's lives uh and, and as i mean as you can tell from Hafsa, right you know bloody buying buying him a slave and sending it to to his bedroom but if you were a higher ranking concubine or, or consort or, or even as we'll come to wife if your son was older and more likely to be in the conversation to inherit well that was a different story what would usually happen in that situation Uh, is that when the sultan died, the appointed heir, usually the eldest son of the preferred consort, would take his dad's place and then, you're not ready for this, murder all his brothers, just to make sure there was no issue with succession, just to secure his position on the throne. This was a very normal and very accepted part of the Ottoman imperial succession process, if you'll believe it, and that's why concubines would only ever have one son with the sultans, so it would only generally be half-brothers killing each other rather than full-blown fratricide. Uh, And the other reason, as I mentioned, um, for the one concubine, one son rule, is that it was feared that if a single woman had too many sons with a sultan, uh, she would have increased influence over him as the mother of so many of his princes and potential heirs. And this fear, I will mention, was completely justified. And it was proven entirely true by none other Huram who not only overturned the one concubine one son tradition but also the whole being shipped off to a province rule the Sultan root- rooting tons of women tradition and so many other traditions and so many other rules as we'll come to Huram began her journey to political supremacy within the Ottoman Empire by completely enrapturing Suleiman she was an in- she was an intelligent and a very capable woman And she seemed to have a very good idea of how to get what she wanted. Her careful and analytical approach to dealing with people combined with her, by all accounts, charming and positive personality made her a very dangerous political foe, as those who stood against her found out very quickly. As her favour with Solomon grew, Solomon's interest in other women greatly diminished, and specifically his interest in his former primary consort, Mahidevran. Uh, Despite the fact that she was the mother of his son and heir, a kid named Mustafa, remember his name, he's going to be important later on. But no, in 1521, Huram herself gave birth to a son, Mehmet, and then after a daughter, Miramar, the next year, she gave birth to another son, Selim, in 1524, and this was unprecedented. A concubine giving birth to two Ottoman princes. That was just not how things were done. And she didn't stop there either. She gave birth to three more sons for a total of five, Abdullah, Bayezid, and Shihangir So when we're talking about Ottoman traditions saying that their sultans shouldn't have too many sons with one woman to avoid that woman influencing the sultan too much, well... Forget about that, because Suleiman has five sons with Huram. Now, unfortunately, very few of their kids had the long and prosperous lives that most parents would expect for their children. While uh, Miramar and Selim lived into their 50s, Abdullah died as a child. Mehmed and Shehangir died of illness in their 20s, while Bayezid died a death all too familiar for the sons of Ottoman sultans. He was executed on the orders of his brother. Anyway. We're getting uh, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. Let's return now to the 1520s and talk about the position that Hiram uh, was in as she became Suleiman's favourite. Her principal political opponent was, of course, at this point Mahidevran, the the one whose position Huram was essentially usurping. Mahidevran, she's furious. She's absolutely she's as cross as a frog in a sock with uh, with this whole situation. But as the years continue and as Hiram keeps having kids. The rivalry between these two grows to fever pitch, and the peacekeeper in this situation is actually Suleiman's mum, Hafsa, who tried to get these two women to squash the beef. But to no avail, Huram is not setting, settling for second best, or, or honestly, even equal first. She saw an opportunity to advance her position in this world, and I tell you this, she bloody well took it. As she consistently managed to grow closer than anyone else to Suleiman, right? There's a story. And look, I don't know how, I don't know true this story. There's a lot of stories about this one. I don't know how many, how many of them are actually true. There's a lot of, a lot of people. I mean, as, as is the case generally, more or less every powerful woman in history, a lot of people made up a lot of nonsense about, uh, about Huram Sultan. But there is this one story that kept cropping up. So I'll, I'll, I'll share it. It's, um, it's about Mahidevran's final response to, uh, to Huram continuing to gain, uh, Suleiman's favor and what actually ended up coming as a result of that right the story goes one day she's absolutely fed up Mahi Devran she's absolutely fed up with this young European with her bloody red hair she's come in nicked her spot by Solomon's side and so Mahi Devrin takes matters into her own hands and by matters I mean Huram's face she actually physically attacked Hurum and tried to scratch her face up with her nails trying to try to ruin her beauty and that night, with a, a bloodied and bruised face, Huram uh, refuses to go and root Suleiman when he gives her the old imperial you up. And so he goes, well, hang on one second, what's going on? Why not? Why won't you, right? And so he investigates and he finds out again, the story goes, he finds out that Mahidevran had attacked Huram and injured her. And that, my friends, was the final nail in the coffin for Mahidevran. There, I mean, there are some historians that conjecture that if this story is indeed true, it may have actually been a political masterstroke from her because of what comes next. We know she's clever. She's very clever. So there is the chance, I suppose, that she may have baited Mahi Devrin into attacking her, you know, winding her up to the point that she snapped, knowing that this would make Mahi Devrin look bad. Um, and if this is the case, very neatly done by a Bit of a snake in the grass, our mate Hurrum, el- eliminating her political rival like this, because this is what happened ne- next. It was the end for Mahi Devrin, Right. Remember how I said that lesser consorts and their sons would be shipped off to govern remote provinces, get them far away from Istanbul from the beating heart of the empire? Well, guess what happened to Mahidevran and her son Mustafa? The two of them were shipped off to a province. First one that wasn't actually too far away, but then later one right across the other side of modern-day Turkey. And Mahidevran's furious. But I mean, what can what can she do? She's lost. She's been sent packing and Mustafa all of a sudden way down the pecking order. That was that. GG, no re, right? So now you probably think, well, geez, well done, uh, well done, Huram. Now that you've got rid of Mahidevran, been sent away with Mustafa, there's no one else that she has to contend with. But oh, oh, not quite. That wasn't the case at all. Because certainly, look, everything seems to indicate that Suleiman stopped rooting any of his other concubines. He didn't have any more kids with any other women. Uh, and from the mid-1520s onwards, it's pretty clear he only had eyes for Huram, but... There is one more woman who is still in a position clearly senior to Huram, and this woman uh, wasn't to be done away with quickly through politicking or clever ruses. Oh, no, I am talking, of course, about Hafsa, Suleiman's mum. I mentioned before that the mothers of Ottoman rulers uh, tended to have long and very influential relationships with their sons, and Hafsa is no exception uh, Hafsa is still a very strong force in Solomon's life. Mothers of sultans were generally generally responsible for the establishment and the management of the sultan's household and would uh, directly advise and guide their sons as they governed. So what, you may wonder, is is Huram going to do about this? You know, what's the next trick she's going to pull out of her sleeve to get rid of Hafsa? Well, Rather than something subtle or sneaky, she actually just very prudently allowed the problem to take care of itself, which it did eventually because in 1534, Hafsa died, simple as that. And now there is no one that outranks Huram, no one to stand in her way. And so after the death of Hafsa, Huram went ahead and overturned another long-standing Ottoman tradition when she and Suleiman got married. And on the face of it, doesn't sound like much. You might think, well, seems like a pretty logical next step based on their already monogamous relationship with little horde of kids together. But no, as I mentioned, Suleiman, he's the first Ottoman sultan to get married since Mehmed the Conqueror, it was considered inappropriate for the sultan to have a personal allegiance like a marriage when his only duty was to the empire, of course. So it was, it was almost a little unseemly for the sultan to get married like this. But it, it's unseemly in this situation for another reason altogether. It goes so much further. This marriage was even more extraordinary for a different, a different reason altogether. Because sultans didn't marry their concubines. It had been centuries since an Ottoman sultan had married one of his concubines, Ottoman law forbade the sultan from marrying one of his slaves. So what did he do? Well, Solomon found a very simple solution to this particular legal problem. He simply freed Hurrem from slavery, made her a free woman, and then married her. And this was the first time in Ottoman history that a former slave was made the official legal wife of the sultan and it provoked a huge amount of controversy in ottoman society as you might imagine anyway he did it all the same and the wedding was by all accounts as lavish and as over the top as you'd expect huge celebration and it was followed by the announcement of this title that i mentioned before this new title for huram haseki sultan The political ascendancy of Hurrem Sultan brought about a period of Ottoman history known as the Sultanate of Women. For over a century after Hurrem's marriage, there was an unprecedented rise in the number of powerful women in Ottoman government, usually a, a wife or a mother of the Sultan. And most of these powerful women, kuzum Sultan, Turhan Sultan, the list goes on, most of these women were known by the title Haseki Sultan, uh, this title that made its debut with Hurrem. Uh, It was a revolutionary political development. Uh, Haseki Sultan as a a title essentially meant imperial consort, and it grew to become extremely prestigious and very powerful indeed. It gave women like Huram a way to entrench themselves in the halls of power, to influence how the empire was ruled, and to have their say in day-to-day political affairs. And the rise of the Sultanate of Women was all down to Huram Sultan and her political manoeuvring, which saw the Sultan actively include her in the highest levels of governmental decision-making, and uh, and it afforded her a position of great power and influence. Huram became Solomon's chief advisor of state, essentially, having a substantial influence in the running of the imperial government, both domestically and internationally, it is it, look it is difficult to ascertain the the breadth of her influence in very specific terms as of course she you know she wasn't the only one to advise Suleiman on affairs of state but she definitely played a very big role throughout Suleiman's time as sultan and this set a precedent as i said for for future years as more and more powerful women rose to the forefront of ottoman politics throughout this period known as the the sultanate of women a, a period i might add right That roughly coincides with the apex of the Ottoman Empire's wealth and power and prosperity. And I know that correlation does not necessarily imply causation, but all the same, I will leave it to the listener here to add together this particular two and two. Anyway. Of course, this situation had its critics. Suleiman was said to be completely controlled by Huram. He was said to be bewitched or even uh without having any real power, uh, completely at the bidding of his wife. But look, I said before, powerful women everywhere have always had haters. So whatever. And look, even look, here's the other thing, right? Even if he were being controlled by Huram, which he wasn't, but even if he were, he did pretty well out of it. Solomon became known to history as Solomon the Magnificent. So I wouldn't be complaining if I were him, honestly. All the same, look, Huram, she recognised the potential weaknesses of her position as a woman. uh, These weaknesses were clear targets for political opponents. They might try to exploit them. And so she moved very quickly and cleverly to shore up any weakness in her position as Haseki Sultan. For instance, in 1536, she moved against her, her chief rival in the imperial court, the Grand Vizier, Pargali Ibrahim Pasha. Now, Ibrahim, interestingly, like Huram, had been taken as a slave from Europe as a young at a young age. He was seized from Venice when he was just a boy. But he, like her, had risen through the ranks, and as a former Christian, he was of great assistance to Solomon in dealing with his neighbours to the west. Uh, for instance, helping to negotiate friendly terms with the French, which would later result in a in a formal alliance. Um, or another example, convincing the Holy Roman Empire to turn over Hungary to become a client state of the Ottoman. So he did he did a lot of he did a lot of legwork for the uh, for the Sultan. But even having said that, he was. No match for Huram because in 1536 she moved against him and had him assassinated one night as he went to bed after having had dinner with Suleiman. And I don't think Suleiman ever found out either. I don't think, I mean, obviously he found out that, you know, his grand vizier had been killed, but I don't think he found out that it was Huram. And in fact, I don't think it's been conclusively proven, proven that Huram actually did it. I don't know if it was, I don't know if it's been proven that she was the one who had the blow killed, but she did stand so to, to gain so much from his death that it's it's ultimately very likely but look eventually uh once um, once this bloke uh, ibrahim had been removed eventually uh and after organizing a marriage between her daughter Mirima and a fellow named Rustam, huram appointed her own grand vizier essentially her son-in-law Rustam, right now her son-in-law is beside her in advising the sultan so once again very neat and tidy in ensuring that she had this iron-clad grip on power at the highest levels. these, these supporters that were going to back her no matter what. Um, another move that Hura made to solidify her position uh, was overthrowing yet another Ottoman tradition, one that had significant consequences once again in bringing about this so-called Sultanate of Women. Mehmed the Conqueror, after taking Constantinople, he had made a decree that said that women were forbidden from living in Topkapi Palace, the Ottoman centre of government in Istanbul, the residence of the Sultan. Well, bugger that, says Huram, after a fire in the old palace destroyed the harem in which she had lived... Huram moved into Topkapi Palace for good. She doesn't care about what Mehmed the Conqueror had said a hundred years ago. Doesn't care about that. She moved herself into the palace that contained the beating heart of uh, of political affairs in the Ottoman Empire, and this, of course, brought her even closer to the centre of political power in the realm. This time, in a very literal sense, again. This helped to normalise the position of women in government as future Haseki Sultans would also live in Topkapi Palace, which then became known as the New Palace once her moved in. So she's done a very bloody good job of working her way to the top, you have to admit. Anyway, with her ascendancy complete as Haseki Sultan, second only really to the Sultan himself, what, you may wonder, did Hiram do with her newfound power? Well, quite a lot, let me tell you. As Suleiman spent much of his reign away with his armies fighting more or less anyone who wanted a scrap, the Austrians, the Hungarians, the Safavids, the Moldavians, even the Holy Roman Empire, Hurum uh, was left in charge back home in Istanbul. Now, she wrote regular letters to her husband, letting him know what was going on and how she was handling it, continuing all the while to build this base of political supporters that surrounded her. But let's talk in real terms about what Hiram did with all this political power that she'd built up for herself once she was properly secure in her position. She remained involved in Ottoman international affairs, although obviously fell short of going off and leading troops into battle personally. Instead, no, her role, rather than being a military one, was more of a diplomatic one. She corresponded with several neighbouring and, and regional leaders. While Suleiman was off on uh, on his many campaigns, Huram was writing letters all over the place, keeping in touch with other powerful women in, in various courts. Um, and because of her European heritage, too, she was able to make diplomatic inroads into various European courts. And in this vein, her most notable correspondence was with, very interestingly, King Sigismund II Augustus of Poland. As she herself was from the Kingdom of Poland originally, this is particularly significant. Throughout Hiram's time at the top, even while Solomon was off stouching with half of Eastern Europe, Poland and the Ottoman Empire remained not just peaceful, but friendly. In fact, the Ottomans and the Poles signed a perpetual peace agreement in 1533, which was then renewed in 1547 and 1551. Don't, don't know why a perpetual pre-peace treaty needed renewing, but look, in any case, good on you, keeping the, keeping peace between two nations. Um, uh, along with one of the letters that she sent King Sigismund, uh, she also sent some linen clothing and sh- and some handkerchiefs, the sort of gift that as a kid you'd be, rolling your eyes at and, and wishing you'd been given something fun like a, a Tonka truck. But at two of these letters that she sent Sigismund II have actually survived. You can go online and, and, and you can read them yourself, uh, uh, assuming you can read 16th century Arabic writing, that is. Anyway, this is the only recorded instance in history of an Ottoman empress corresponding with a king. Haseki Sultans would write to other female leaders all the time, but it was only ever this once- that an empress wrote to a king her influence on ottoman foreign policy was well it was subtle certainly but very strong diplomacy not swords and shields defined her approach to international relations and the sway that she had in the sultan's court and with the sultan's advisers meant that she was able to shape the decisions of the sultan when it came to foreign affairs But let's talk about her domestic legacy, which is uh, a little bit more obvious and also rather more tangible, as she directly established and supported building and infrastructure projects, some of which carry her name through to this very day. In Istanbul, even today, you can find the Haseki Sultan Complex, which was built by Huram in the Fatih district. It contained two girls' schools, a women's hospital, a mosque, and a soup kitchen for the poor. And it seems, right, that most extraordinarily of all, she funded the, the the construction of this complex out of her own pocket. She funded this personally with her dowry money. She also built a bathhouse in Istanbul that even today is known as the Hurrem Sultan Bathhouse. Five stars on TripAdvisor. Nice one, Hurrem. Must have done a good job there but it didn't stop in Istanbul just in in with her work in Istanbul further out in the empire Hiram also built complexes like the Haseki Kul- Sultan complex in uh, in cities like Ankara and Adrianople today known as Iderna, uh as well as soup kitchens for the poor in holy cities like Mecca and Jerusalem and and this was might i say fantastic for her reputation people bloody loved her especially the poor who made use of these facilities women who were able to send their daughters to school and go and pray at these mosques that had been built specifically for them she was a she was a a hero of the downtrodden and the underrepresented so she did a very very good job in improving the lot of people who were otherwise more or less forgotten about in society the poor the marginalized those at the fringes so I mean, if nothing else, good on you, Hurrem Sultan, for, for, for doing that. But quite aside from all of these building and infrastructure projects, Hurrem was also involved with the day-to-day running of the empire in a way that no woman had been before. But of course, many women would be afterwards, thanks to her. This set a precedent for future women to have a similarly powerful role in Ottoman politics and helped to shape and guide the course that this very powerful empire took throughout its history finally both she and Suleiman were great patrons of the arts they helped to establish artistic societies they funded all sorts of works of art paintings jewelry books textiles poetry skilled artists and artisans traveled specifically to Istanbul during the reign of Suleiman and Huram knowing that their craft would be well supported there and as powerful as the as the Ottoman Empire was militarily under these two it's Cultural prestige grew as well. So, here's the bottom line: Hurrem Sultan changed the Ottoman Empire forever. And I'm not just talking about her achievements while she was while she was Haseki Sultan. I'm not just talking about her contributions to art and culture and buildings and architecture and her social welfare programs or her influence on on, on international diplomacy. I'm talking about the very political structures and political cultures that underpinned the Ottoman Empire itself. And she's not quite finished yet. She's not finished upsetting the Ottoman apple cart either because as the years passed and as her sons came of age, she, unlike the mothers of the Sultan's always had been, she was not sent away to some far-flung province into political irrelevance. No, she was the First ever imperial consort to spend her entire life in the palace at Istanbul, refusing to be sidelined, to be packed off somewhere and forgotten about. And again, this set another precedent for future powerful Ottoman rulers. And again, this outraged so many traditionalists in Istanbul. But bugger them, Huram does what she wants, even in her later years. She was as politically active as ever. Uh, she did the same thing that she'd always done to make sure that she had such a strong grip on power. Uh, for instance, in the uh, in the 1550s, uh, remember Suleiman first son, Mustafa, uh, who had been shipped off with his mum all those years ago? Well, there were many in the Ottoman imperial court who favoured him as an heir to Solomon, perhaps to restrain Hiram's power, preventing one of her sons from inheriting, and then she'd have an opportunity to influence Ottoman politics further through her son. Well... Huram, with the support of her son-in-law as the Grand Vizier, cleverly manoeuvred to make it seem like Mustafa was not just attempting to secure his position as Suleiman's heir, but was actually an active threat to his rule. Mustafa had his own regional army that he commanded personally, and Grand Vizier Rustam was able to give Suleiman a bit of the old Grima worm-tongue treatment and convince him that using this army, his son planned to rise up against him. Solomon was taken in by this and he summoned his son Mustafa to him. And when he arrived, like a good and dutiful son should, his old man had him killed just like that on the spot. And this did not go down well with the the imperial court, many of whom, as I said, supported Mustafa as the next heir. And so Solomon recognised that he'd made a mistake and that someone had to take responsibility and pay for this mistake. And so he dismissed Rustam as Grand Vizier for about two years before reinstating him like nothing had happened. But but here's the thing, right? Here's the takeaway from this whole issue, right? By removing Mustafa, there was no one to stand in the way of one of Huram's sons inheriting the throne. Well, nothing except for half of them being dead by this stage, that is. But ultimately, when Solomon died in 1566, it was Huram's son Selim who succeeded him as Sultan Selim II. Now, why Selim? Well, he was the only son left. The others had all died of illness or been killed by other family members, as I mentioned. This is how they did it in the Ottoman Empire. But sadly, Hurum Sultan never lived to see her son Selim take the throne. She never got to enjoy the exalted position of Valide Sultan, the mother of the Sultan, because she died. She died on the 15th of April, 1558, only in her mid-50s. But after a period of illness, she finally succumbed, and that was the end of her. The empire was thrown into mourning, and a vast public funeral was held for Huram, with thousands of people flooding into the streets of Istanbul to mourn her death. Even with her enemies at court, the people of Istanbul loved Huram, thanks to her expansive building projects and the aid that she had given to the poor and the needy. And even after her death, her legacy lived on enormously strongly as the culture of having powerful women involved at the highest levels of Ottoman politics would define the history of the empire for the next 100 years. The Sultanate of Women had begun and no longer would imperial wives and mothers be sidelined and kept away from the heart of Ottoman politics. Huram Sultan created a legacy not just for her but for the women that came after her many of whom had been enslaved like her but nonetheless rose to the high halls of power as advisors and regents ottoman women influenced affairs of state just as huram sultan had done Now, eventually, this came to an end as power shifted away from wives and mothers and instead towards the position of Grand Vizier, which brought about an end to the Sultanate of Women. But before this took place, when it comes to this era of women dominating Ottoman imperial politics like never before or afterwards, there was one person to whom all the broken rules, all the overturned traditions could be traced. Huram Sultan, Roxalana, whose strong ambition and deft politicking left a monumental legacy on one of the mightiest empires of the modern era. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Huram Sultan and how she kicked off the Sultanate of women within the Ottoman Empire. A fascinating story. Always good to get across a story of a powerful woman in history. If you've got another story of someone like Huram Sultan that I should get across, I'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch. History.net. Find the contact form there. Get in touch and I'll uh, I'll have a look into whatever you send me. Great to hear from listeners. New and old alike. Thanks to everyone who's getting in touch. And all the boring housekeeping stuff coming as a special treat for you to close out the show. History.net, as I mentioned, the website... There you can find links to everything that you need about the show. Download old episodes. Um, you can you can stream them from there as well. In case you want to, uh, you can buy merch. Head over to the T the, the Public shop using the link on the website, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, or you can support the show directly through Patreon. patreoncom history All sorts of uh, ben- benefits and bonuses that you can get your hands on. Well, I uh, no, I guess you can get your hands on some of them. Some of them are actually tangible goods. If you sign up at certain tiers, you'll get exclusive merch sent to you. But otherwise behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, uh, ad-free listening, of course, available to all patrons. So get across that if you're uh, if you're looking for a way to support the show. Thank you to everyone who is doing so, and thank you to you for just listening. It's great to have you on board. It's so good to have you along each and every week for uh, for a bit of half hour History. Long mad continue, and I'll be back, of course, next week with more nonsense for you to enjoy. Until then, leaving you the question posed on Reddit, this one comes to us from Redditor EatonsHT, who asks... Why did the Ottomans become obsessed with making footstools after their empire collapsed?